Hello, everybody. This is Jean Barto with the Custer's Luck Radio Show, and I'm sharing with you today a show I did back in 2018, and it is about Civil War winter camps. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. This is Jean Barta with the Custer's Luck Radio Show, and I'm recording this podcast on Sunday, January 7, 2018. And I'm going to talk today about winter camp in both the Army of the Potomac and the Army of Northern Virginia. And this will probably be uh, put up for people to listen to on the 8th, Monday, January 8th. 2018. Happy New Year to everybody and um, as you can tell by my talking I'm still uh, trying to say 2017 so I apologize for that but I do know that it's 2018 and we are starting to get a little warmer again after the bad weather and the snow and the very cold weather the last few days. Anyway, let me get started. And this uh, excerpt is the Army of the Potomac in Winter Quarters, and it is from the Iron Brigader website. And you can find it at ironbrigader.com. And the blogger is Mark, and it was published five years ago, four and a half, November 25th, 2012, if you actually want to find the printed excerpt and let me get started here as a general rule the Union Army in the East scaled back active campaigning in the winter months and constructed shelters and camps of a more substantial nature than those of the warmer times of year this was particularly true for the Army of the Potomac which spent the first three winters of the war camped in the Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Northern Virginia area. Shelter tents alone would make for a cold and very uncomfortable camp. So, when the Army went into winter quarters, semi-permanent structures were built to keep the soldiers comfortable while they waited for the weather to warm up and the campaigning to begin again. The two most common shelters in winter camps were either small log cabins or structures that were a combination of partial log cabins with a tent or canvas roof attached to the top of the log base. Those with combination structures oftentimes dug out a few feet of earth so the floor of the shelter was below the surface. This made them more roomy and a little less exposed to cold winds. Both types were heated by fireplaces, and the men fashioned bunks, desks, and shelves out of whatever materials were available. Floors were typically split logs with the flat side up or straw. Some were just a dirt floor. Usually the huts contained four enlisted men. And um, a picture I'm looking at right now at that ironbrigader.com website shows a picture of the 10th Massachusetts Infantry. They spent the winter of 1863, 1864, 
at Brandy Station, Virginia. The regimental historian writes and describes the unit's winter quarters. Logs constituted the walls of the huts and shelter tents formed the roofs. They stood six feet by ten on the ground, the walls being about four feet high. At one end were the door and fireplace, at the other the bunks, each one made for two occupants, the lower being about six inches from the floor, the upper three feet. The remaining floor space, six by six feet, was reserved for all the purposes of housekeeping by the four men who called this home. After the Battle of Fredericksburg, the Iron Brigade's 24th Michigan Infantry spent the winter of 1862-1863 at Camp Isabella, named after the commanding officer's wife, at Belle Plaine, Virginia. The 24th Regimental Historian recorded that unit's winter homes. They were about 8 by 10 feet in size and 5 feet high, with the shelter tents for roof and gable coverings. The hillsides furnished good fireplaces, which were finished with stone, and had mud and stick chimneys. The spaces between the logs were plastered with mud, which soon hardened. The hard ground answered for a floor, while bedsteads were fashioned from poles covered with pine and cedar boughs. The beds served for chairs and knees for tables. A bed was constructed on either side of the cabin and the space between was kitchen, sitting room, and parlor in one. A hardtack box served for a pantry and such was the soldiers' winter quarters. A bayonet stuck in the ground with a candle on top served for lighting the humble abode, which was usually occupied by three or four comrades. Here the soldier cook ate, slept, and passed his time when other duties permitted, waiting for the activities of the army in the spring. Another Iron Brigade regiment, the 6th Wisconsin Infantry, spent the winter of 1863-1864 in winter quarters near Kelly's Ford, Virginia. In a letter, Lieutenant Colonel Rufus Dawes wrote about his regiment's winter preparations. Our men have built fine log cabins and the encampment of the brigade is very respectable. It is curious to see the ingenuity displayed by the men in making themselves comfortable in their log houses. With no tool but the little hatchet, they house themselves snugly and comfortably and provide all the necessary furniture. Officers had similar but somewhat upgraded accommodation compared to the enlisted men. Dawes shared a cabin with one of the regimental surgeons. Dawes described their cabin as cheerful and bright and the fireplace as a complete success and our chimney is all of brick. We have a tight board floor and are very comfortably established for a soldier's winter. Dawes' cabin had two 10-foot by 10-foot rooms with four windows and two desks plus bunks and that fireplace he was proud of. Although fighting continued in other warmer locations, the Army of the Potomac saw much less action in the colder months of the year and settled into winter quarters to wait for spring. It was the calm before the inevitable storm of battle 
And when the weather warmed up and the dirt roads dried up, active campaigning and the casualties of battle returned once again. And I will note that the blogger in this excerpt used four secondary sources, one being hardtack and coffee or the unwritten story of an army life, and then also the life of Billy Yank, the common soldier of the Union by Bell Irvin Wiley, and then there was another book, Service with the Six Wisconsin Volunteers by Rufus Dawes. And that was a, quote, classic reprint, and I believe classic, uh, Rufus Dawes was actually a Civil War officer who uh, served with the 6th Wisconsin. Anyway, um, I'm going to take a short break right now, and I'll be back, and I'll give information about what happened with the South. <music> start with the show again, I wanted to let you know about a site that I have found very helpful the last few weeks in giving real news about what's going on. It's naturalnews.com and there's plenty of health related information there, but there is also other information of a current nature that will be very helpful in the days and weeks to come. Thanks so much. And now I'll be starting the presentation again. This is Jean Barta with the Custer's Luck Radio Show. And this is a podcast that's being broadcast on January 8th, 2017. And it was recorded on the day before, Sunday, January 7th, 2018. Let me get that right. We are in 2018. Anyway, my next excerpt is from RVA News and this was published about a year ago well actually three years ago December 2nd 2014 and the writer was Phil Williams the RVA News I think you can find this on the internet rvanews.com I don't believe that this website is being upgraded or updated the last postings for it were last year, were a year or more ago in 2016. Anyway, here is the southern side of life in winter camp. By December of 1864, soldiers outside Richmond and Petersburg started to settle into the routines of winter camp life. Despite a few efforts in early December by Union General Ulysses S. Grant, to attack Confederate railroad supply lines into Petersburg. The cold weather, sleet, and snow forced both sides to lay low. It was a chance to rest up, regroup, and make plans for spring. For many soldiers, it was a chance to show off their structural engineering skills. As the cold weather set in and it was clear they weren't moving anywhere for a while, so soldiers set about building their winter quarters. 
working with the limited resources around them and without a lot of organization or oversight on behalf of leadership, it was a bit of a hodgepodge effort. Similar to your neighborhood during the holidays, you have some folks who toss up a few decorations and then a few who really go all out. Perhaps the winter quarters of 1864 could have inspired their own tacky cabin tour. And there is a description here from Noah Andre Trudeau in his book, The Last Citadel. And he writes, I wish you could ride around and see how this great army in Northern Virginia is housing itself in its various departments for winter. And Surgeon John Claiborne actually wrote this to his wife in mid-October. Here you may see a hut such as nobody from a soldier ever conceived of, and there a tent of smallest dimensions with a chimney and door, and there a fellow absolutely burrowing under the ground and such contrivances for cooking and keeping dry, dry and warm. The ingenuity of the soldiers in trying to add a little comfort to life in the trenches knew no bounds. Many soldiers wrote home bragging of the winter soldiers shelters they built. And this is a northern excerpt written by Private William L. Phillips of the 5th Wisconsin. And he wrote, We have just finished a house 7 by 10 and we packed the timber half mile on our soldiers. Shoulders. It was heavy green pitch pine. A small piece of it is a load for any man. It is made of halves of pine logs about 8 inches eight inches through, and it is laid five feet high, then covered with tent cloth. The gable ends are closed up with boards. The fireplace and the door occupies one end, and the bunk across it the other. The bunk is made by driving four crotches into the ground about two feet high. Then a cross piece and little poles laid on these. We cover with pine boughs about six inches thick, then covered with dry leaves, and this makes a capital bed. Right before the bed there is a low bench that we can sit by the fire and lean our backs against. And when we eat, we spread a rubber cloth on the bed and turn right around on our feet, on our seat, and stick our feet under the bed and eat our hardtack and sow belly or beef and drink our coffee, content in his kitchens. And this excerpt is actually published in a book by Wilson Green, The Final Battles of the Petersburg Campaign. Winter Quarters, as this excerpt in rvanews.com describes, were lar largely the same on both sides, although often the Confederates had less material to work with. Initially, many soldiers dug underground shelters to simultaneously protect them from both winter weather and potential Union artillery fire. But as the winter went on, more cabins similar to the Union style sprung up. By 1864 and several years of fighting, both armies had learned a thing or two about properly building a winter camp. So, strict rules on hygiene were followed and large trenches were dug for the purposes of waste disposal. Sickness in camp continued to be an issue, but one that was better managed 
as the war dragged on. With a lot of time on, on their hands and boredom setting in, soldiers entertained themselves in the usual ways. On one hand, gambling, drinking, and seeking the company of women, often of ill repute, were as popular as ever. On the other, the winter of 1864 saw a resurgence of religious activity among the soldiers, with several informal chapels springing up among the winter quarters on both sides. Of course, drilling and marching still occurred on a regular basis to keep men fresh for fighting. Pickets were also constantly maintained to keep a watchful eye on enemy movements. Time spent on picket duty during those cold months could be pretty miserable. Long nights with no fires to keep warm, always under the threat of a sniper's bullet or mortar shell, something you definitely wanted to avoid if you could. Picket duty did sometimes result in unusual activity involving the enemy. Occasionally, pickets on both sides formed an informal, temporary truce during which trades were made, banter was exchanged, and men bonded over their shared circumstances. Often as simple as agreeing to a ceasefire during daylight hours, other times the encounters bordered on the ridiculous given the circumstances. And here's another excerpt involving that. Private Henry Houghton of the 3rd Vermont crossed between the lines to harvest firewood and encountered a Confederate on a similar mission. The enemies agreed to cut down the same tree together, the rebel and Houghton hacking on opposite portions of the trunk. And Houghton continues in this quote, After it fell, I chopped down one side of the log and he the other. Then we split it and he had one half and I the other. Then we swapped hats and went back to camp. And I am quite sure I wore that hat until just before the last review in Washington. And this was Private Houghton's reminiscence. And that is also in the book by Wilson Green, The Final Battles of the Petersburg Campaign. Stories about the encounters like this during the long siege of Petersburg of which there are many, really highlight the shared humanity of the soldiers who fought in the war. And I wanted to uh, make sure I covered the southern side as well as the northern side, so that is why I included this short excerpt from rvanews.com. And I thank everybody for listening to this short show today. I'll be back later in the week with something else. And perhaps that, that one will even be live. Enjoy the rest of your day. And stay warm. And be happy it's starting to get a little warmer again. I think it's actually going to be 35 degrees on Monday. At least where I am, just outside D.C. Enjoy your day.